2: So before we get going on this show today, I want to just uh, quickly uh, say one, do a little preface here, because this show has uh, excited a certain amount of pushback. So one thing that we're pretty committed to doing on this particular show, on the Colin McEnroe Show, is exploring questions that sometimes sit in the shadows. So two years ago, I was sitting in this very studio with a young woman named Panna Krom. She was a Cambodian immigrant who, because of a very tragic concatenation of personal circumstances, um, had a baby and was in a panic and didn't know how to talk to anybody about it and drowned that baby in a toilet and went up going to prison. We had Panna Kram in the studio shortly after her discharge from prison, exploring the circumstances that led to this act of what is called Um We won a national award for that. And I, I heard later, uh, just about a month ago, I ran into somebody in Boston I wasn't at the award ceremony, but one of the judges said that the audience gasped when they heard what the show was about. They hadn't heard the show, they just heard that we were winning this award. How could we win an award for something like that? Um, Last year, we were approached by the Marshall Project for a show that no other public radio show would do. They were, the list of prestigious public radio shows uh, that turned them down uh, was comprehensive. Um, uh, They had been looking into the question about whether or not uh, some young men on the autism spectrum who are drawn to um, consume child pornography uh, have a full understanding of what it is they're doing and what the plight is of the people that they're seeing on a computer screen, whether they can fully understand uh, the level of victimization that goes on, and therefore whether it makes sense for the criminal justice system to treat them exactly the same way as neurotypical perpetrators, obviously a very difficult uh, subject. Um, I'm not in favor, uh, you will be relieved to know, of drowning babies in toilets or of child pornography, but I am a believer in doing shows where we look at things that are sometimes a little bit uncomfortable, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at it from both sides, too. We're going to look at the question of... Uh, well, I mean, perhaps for purposes of getting people all riled up, we've used the word asylum, but the word asylum is being used a lot these days. Um, uh, it you know, obviously has some bad connotations. What we're really talking about is inpatient psychiatric treatment. Um, uh, do we need to have an increased capacity to care for some uh, of the uh, patients who have, It's just, a, and this is a sliver, a smaller group uh, of the psychiatric patients uh, who need um, they, they need inpatient facilities that currently don't exist or don't have adequate capacity. So that's what the show is about today. A little bit later in the show, you're going to find, listen to somebody who was in one of those kinds of facilities, but at a time when those facilities were not necessarily run in a way that did great credit to them uh, and therefore has a lot of distrust for that idea. You're We're also going to talk to um, an author who's written a history of one of the more notorious Um, asylums that was part of this kind of Walmart of of societal dysfunction um, in in New York and what is now Roosevelt Island. Um, But first we're going to talk about this whole question of um, what happened after the movement to deinstitutionalize people with mental illnesses. Obviously there were a lot of people uh, in psychiatric facilities who could function with with the right amount of support who could function in the outside world but maybe not everybody who was deinstitutionalized could do that. Um, that's the question. So joining us in studio, as he has for many other shows, Harold Hank Schwartz, psychi- psychi- psychiatrist in chief at the Institute of Living, uh, vice president of behavioral health for Harvard Hospital. And joining us uh, by phone is Dominic Sisti, director of the Scattergood program for the applied ethics of behavioral health care and assistant professor in the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. So, um, Uh, Dominic Sisti, I'm going to begin with you. Um, I think this story, this conversation that we're about to have, does maybe begin with that movement towards deinstitutionalization uh, and and the supplanting of institutional care for community-based care. Maybe you can kind of set the stage a little bit uh, about that. What was contemplated uh, in the 60s and 70s as this movement got going?
1: Sure. Sure. Thanks for having me. So, to to take us back to the beginning, um, you know, we had a wide array of psychiatric facilities across the country in the form of state hospitals and private hospitals. And in the 1950s, the number of individuals inside of these hospitals peaked at around 550 thousand individuals. Um, it, it became clear uh, there were a confluence of things that. That led up to this, um, namely the invention of psychotropic drugs that help individuals with psychotic symptoms, um, the civil rights movement, which was also a patient rights movement, um, and frankly the um, shrinking state budgets, uh, all kind of coalesced and led to a movement to, uh, to to move folks out of these institutions and into the community where they could receive. adequate adequate treatment, probably superior treatment for many of them, uh, uh, outside the confines of locked facilities and psychiatric wards. Um, That happened over the course of many decades, starting really in the 1960s after President Kennedy's Mental Health Act promised to create community mental health centers and fund a robust community mental health program. Um, And and the, the goal there was to provide substantial amounts of mental health care in the community, meaning in outpatient settings, in maybe uh, transitional type care settings, but not in these large psychiatric facilities, um, which were under a lot of scrutiny because of, of abuses that had been taking place and had been, become publicized. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the movement to deinstitutionalize, to shut down state hospitals, uh, was a really a confluence of many factors uh, that led to now the, um, the the evaporation of psychiatric beds um, from, as I mentioned, 550,000 down to about 40,000.
2: Um, Hank, I'm going to ask you to uh, imagine that I'm somebody else, and I, I'm a, a parent, uh, I've got an adult daughter, uh, and uh, her name is uh, Miss X. And Miss X has a pretty profound psychiatric illness um, uh, that includes psychotic episodes and suicidal ideation. She's not institutionalized. Uh, we've tried having her live in our house. She's in her late 20s now. Um, we've also had her try to live out in the community with the kinds of support, I think, envisioned in that Kennedy era vision. But uh, periodically, she decompensates and has these massive episodes. And so she's just, had one she seems genuinely suicidal she 's uh, obviously psychotic as well, having a psychotic episode. Um, we take her to the emergency room probably right that 's probably what 's going to happen. Give us kind of a sense of what the what the decision tree is from there what 's going to happen to to miss X in that situation well we,
0: she shows up in the emergency room and she 's going to be uh, evaluated by a psychiatrist or an advanced practice registered nurse who's going to uh, assess the degree to which she is, she is psychotic um, but and especially will assess the degree to which she may be suicidal and will make a determination as to whether the safest and most effective place for the treatment of this acute episode of illness is inside a psychiatric hospital. But then, of course, the clinician is going to turn around and look at how many other people are are in the ED, how many beds uh, in the hospital may be filled. And one of the possible outcomes, um, and it happens not infrequently, is that there are no beds available at that time because we have so, so few. And she may spend days in the emergency room until a bed actually does become available. But ultimately, she should be, from the patient you're describing, should be, um, and will be hospitalized, uh, at least for a brief time.
2: Uh, brief time means 5 to 10 days?
0: On average, the length of stay in American hospitals uh, today is roughly 5 to 10 days. Now, she may be um, somebody for whom that that's, a, uh, that's a perfectly appropriate uh, length of time, but we need to keep in mind that that amount of time is by and large dictated by insurance coverage, not actually by the natural span of the biologic illness that we're talking about. And so it's dictated to cover or protect the patient during that period in which she may be most unsafe rather than to treat the full episode of
2: illness. Right. So, um, uh, Dominic Sisti, If I understand uh, what Hank's saying right now, too, it, it's probably possible that uh, Miss X will. First of all, let me ask you one more question, Hank, before I go back to Dom, Is there is it axiomatic that there'll be somebody sitting in the uh, in the ER, a, a psychiatric clinician sitting in the ER waiting for Miss X to show up? Uh, does every ER have such a person?
0: No, every ER doesn't have such a person. The major ERs, though, for instance, at at Hartford Hospital and at other of the major hospitals, will have a mental health staff. It may not be a psychiatrist. In some of the smaller hospitals, it may be a psychiatric social worker who may make that determination uh, that the patient needs to be hospitalized, though a physician, not necessarily a psychiatrist, of course, would have to sign on to that and write the orders to have the patient
2: hospitalized. Um, So, uh, Dominic Sisti, I mean, one possibility, I guess, is that uh, Miss X uh, will uh, get that five to 10 days uh, of insurance covered uh, hospitalization, bounce back out into her existing situation. There may be some kind of attempt to deal with her once again, give her the kind of community support services that might work, probably do work for a heck of a lot of patients, but that she also might just be cycling back into the emergency room, uh, you know, in a fairly short window of time, like what, a year? or two, something like that?
1: Oh, I think, you know, many cases, much sooner. I mean, this, this really was the impetus for my interest in getting into this area was I teach residents in the psychiatry uh, residency program at Penn, and one of the things they struggle with is what they call treating and streeting, which is the idea that these, you know, these patients will show up in the, in the CRC, the Crisis Response Center, and the, the young psychiatrists are tasked with stabilizing them. Um, and getting them, you know, essentially safe, only to see them be discharged uh, prematurely um, again because of insurance limitations or census in the hospital. There's no room, and they and only to see them come back literally a week later with with the same, you know, decompensating symptoms. Um, so it might not be a year. It might be much sooner than that. And you know, this revolving door is now has been documented in the, in, the, in the literature.
2: And so in your research and you're writing about this, uh, Dominic, you said that, first of all, the the largest mental health facilities in America are now effectively uh, jails and prisons, Uh, that the uh, other places that this, you know, smaller percentage of people with psychiatric illnesses who do not uh, do well in a community assisted environment, uh, that they wind up in homeless shelters, they wind up on the streets um mm-hmm. uh, they and they wind up in er's as we're documenting here right so so the argument that you've made you've made is that maybe we don't have quite enough beds and maybe we don't have the right kind of beds in the right kind of places to care for some people with treatment resistant mental illnesses for a longer period of time and deliver services to them in that environment maybe you can say a little bit more about that
1: that's exactly the argument i mean i the um, the basic point is that there remains a population of individuals who have serious mental illness, um, have um, exhausted community resources and services to the point where they um, are not succeeding in, in the community. Uh, they, they may become disruptive, decompensate, um, and become public nuisances, such as it is, and uh, find themselves incarcerated. And these are the individuals, I think, that we overlook um we we forget that that this most vulnerable population really does deserve adequate substantial structured care um potentially for you know months even frankly years in some cases um, that m- may not may not be available in, in, you know within the community um itself so uh, so that is the basic idea and you know the, what you alluded to there is that the treatment should be appropriate, and it should be done in the appropriate place for the appropriate time, um, and we we simply don't have that capacity right now in our healthcare system.
2: So, Hank, there's two things that make it hard to have this conversation. Well, there's a lot of things that make it hard to have this conversation. But here in Connecticut, it's hard to have this conversation because we have just been through a horrible scandal uh, with the Whiting Forensic Institute, uh, which is uh, a, a facility that exists to address that that place where um, mental health, uh, the mental health apparatus and the criminal justice apparatus kind of intersect. But we had a situation where there was inadequate supervision and AIDS effectively turning it into an Abu Ghraib uh, Uh, for some of the inmates. you got that problem, number one. The other problem is it's almost impossible to start a constructive conversation when this idiot chimes in.
3: Part of the problem is we used to have mental institutions, and I said this yesterday, we had a mental institution where you take a sicko like this guy, he was a sick guy, so many signs, and you'd bring him to a mental health institution. Those institutions are largely closed because communities didn't want them. communities didn't want to spend the money for them so you don't have any intermediate ground you can't put him in jail because he hadn't done anything yet but you know he's going to do something so we're going to be talking seriously about opening mental health institutions again in some cases reopening i can tell you in new york the governors in new york did a very very bad thing when they closed our mental institutions so many of them you have these people living on the streets And I can say that, in many cases throughout the country, they're very dangerous. They shouldn't be there.
2: Okay. Well, Hank, obviously this is the wrong way to talk about this. You don't want to uh, um, equate violence and danger with mental illness. People with mental illnesses are much more often the victims of violence than they are the perpetrators of violence. That's not the reason you want to provide more inpatient facilities. But I think there's an awful lot of people who hear the president of the United States say that and go, oh yeah, that sounds about right. We're going to lock these people up so they don't show up at schools with guns.
0: So I guess if you put a bunch of monkeys at a typewriter um, and just have them type away, once in a while they're going to type a complete sentence and it might even uh, by accident uh, be true. Um, So here I think uh, the president by accident has stumbled upon a truth, which is that we need more psychiatric hospital beds. But that's the only part of what he has said uh, that is true to equate having more psychiatric hospital beds with the possibility that this will help to reduce the incidence uh, of mass shootings is just entirely misleading and uh, fallacious. If you think about The number of people who might fit the profile of a mass shooter. And then you think about the number of people in America with severe mental illness. Schizophrenia alone has an incidence of 1%. So we're talking about 3.2 million people, some of whom will fit the profile of people who look like they might or could be a mass shooter. The truth is we have no test that is going to pick that needle out of a haystack and identify the person who might become a shooter. But in order to use hospitalization to prevent it, we would have to sweep whole numbers of people who might fit that profile into hospitals. I think that that's called preventive detention. That's a thing that we don't do in America, and it wouldn't even prevent mass shootings, many of which are committed by people who don't ever come into contact with the mental health system, may not have a diagnosis of a severe mental disorder anyway.
2: Right. So, Dominic Sisti, back to the number that you started out with, we went from uh, 550,000 people in in state uh, mental facilities down to 45,000. If Trump had his way, I assume we'd be headed back up towards 550,000. That's obviously not workable or a good idea or even moral on a number of levels. But let me let me. Come at it from the other end of the pipeline, all right? There are people, and some of whom are listening to the show right now, who will say, and I'm sure have said to you, Dominic Sisti, until we've really built out the community based mental health system Uh, when we until we've realized 100 percent of that original Kennedy era vision uh, fully funded it uh, and and brought it into full flower it's wrong to go back to talking about adding more inpatient treatment because we really haven't had the chance to prove how universally or close to universally effective the community model can be what what do you say to that Mm -hmm.
1: So, two answers. One is that we can do both at the same time, and my argument is not an argument um, that excludes building out the community based um, psychiatric system at all. in fact i uh, you know I've written that we we need to fully you know uh, fund and resource the community based services while at the same time recognizing that inpatient treatment is part of that continuum of care. It would be like saying, in oncology, that inpatient treatment is not necessary, and frankly, you can get your chemo outpatient and go back and forth to your oncologist. But you know, uh, for the patient that needs surgery to have a major tumor removed, I, I would expect folks would agree that inpatient treatment is appropriate and potentially appropriate for a certain you know number of days, weeks, uh, while they while that patient stabilizes. Likewise, in mental health care, there is a range of severity. And there will be individuals who need the most intense structured settings to recover. Um, you know, uh, so I, my response to, to that argument is that this is not a zero. This shouldn't be a zero-sum game. We should all be working together to, to get the necessary funding for a comprehensive mental health care system that includes a full array of community-based services as well as inpatient structured. Care for individuals who need it.
2: So, Dominic uh, Sisti, let me ask you this. Um, what does that new asylum, uh, we'll put quotes around that word, but what does that modern, humane, progressive, treatment delivery oriented, quote, asylum, unquote, look like?
1: Well, there isn't one model. Um, in fact, I mean, there's many models actually that exist today already from from places like the Institute of Living all the way out to more um, sort of uh, the private places that are are farmsteads and what are called recovery campuses like Cooper Reese Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, Gould Farm in Massachusetts, other, you know, all sorts of modalities from therapeutic communities to, to old school psychiatric hospitals. So, there isn't one specific model that would, I think, be the only model that we would go with. We would want to diversify the modalities, the models, and uh, and make you know make these different models available to individuals who who might need longer-term care. So, to, you know, the the point would be that these places would have to be ethically administered. They would have to be staffed up by highly trained, well-paid people. Um, you know, like any institution that cares for or works with a vulnerable population, whether it's a psychiatric hospital or a nursing home or a daycare, for that matter. We would want to have very clear and careful oversight of the facility um, and and transparency in how it's running so that we can be very, you know, as sure as we can, that we can minimize abuses, um, eliminate abuses if possible. But the the point here is that the, the model would be, you know, diverse depending on the population and the need.
2: Um, Hank, I, I'm sitting here in a studio on Asylum Avenue in Hartford, Hartford's uh, uh, famous also for the Institute of Living. So tell us, I, I, I have no idea at this point, although at one point I did have a pretty good idea. W- what is the inpatient reality of the Institute of Living at this point? Um, Our reality is that
0: um, we have a facility that um, I think we'd like to think of as being um, a reasonably comfortable, um, pleasant place. We have regulatory requirements, actually, that drive us, um, for safety's sake, increasingly to sacrifice some elements of patient dignity in favor of safety, and, and we push back on that hard. It's a it's a it's a delicate balance. Um, the reality is that our average length of stay is somewhere between five and ten days, but there are times when patients need much longer hospitalization, and if we feel it must, uh, that, that's what we've got to do. A, we can try to get the patient into Connecticut Valley Hospital. That patient may linger on a list for CVH for 60 days or more mm-hmm. in our hospital
2: because the beds aren't there.
0: Excuse me, the beds aren't there. The the beds aren't there. So it's just it's just being it's just on a waiting list. But many patients who don't quite need that length of stay but need more than 10 days, well, we we keep them, um, and they may be there for weeks or uh, a month or two. Uh, by and large, of course, we don't get. Paid for that, and I'm not arguing that uh, we're in it. We're not in the business for the money, but we we do have. We're a nonprofit organization. We have to pay our costs. So that's that's another tough reality. I, I just want to say you know, every patient deserves. A shot at full recovery. And full recovery ideally really does mean programs in the community and a life in the community. And it is a real societal failure that we have not funded that and pulled that together in some integrated way. But recovery for some people also means the proper hospitalization during acute uh, episodes or maybe even even longer there is no one recovery path that fits everyone
2: um i should say just by the way of putting cards on the table so uh, when i was 14 years old my father Trying to kill himself. This isn't any big secret. I wrote a book about it, but um, and and he wound up in the psych ward of Hartford Hospital, not at the institute, but uh, it's called CCU two at the time. Uh, and he was sure there for more than five to ten days. I've actually sort of probably blocked out in my memory. Seems to me he was there maybe about a month. Um, and um, we, as a family, benefited from that because we were a terrified he was going to try to kill himself again, and b pretty sure that if we, we popped him back into his very stressful the stressful environment, the same stressors. Uh, that he hadn't been dealing with very well, that something bad was going to happen. So we benefited from that a lot. Um, Dominic Sisti, I'm guessing, I mean, my family was a family of modest means. I was 14 years old. I have no idea how that hospitalization got paid for. I'm assuming we had private insurance or I I don't know what happened. But I'm just guessing that, you know, somebody like that now, or as Hank is saying, somebody who needs more than five to 10 days to get that full recovery that we're talking about. I mean, there's there's not just the problem with adequate numbers of beds right there's just a whole question of whether there's any mechanism to pay for it
1: that's right yeah and and uh, you know Hank can fill you in on the, the you know the payer mix for the institute, but I can tell you you know some of these more private you know some of these places are don't take insurance they're private pay only, and you know the high quality ones run in the you know neighborhood of twenty five thousand dollars a month um, or more uh and, and often have you know, treatment trajectories that go out to two to three months. So you're looking at, you know, you're looking at it close to a hundred thousand dollars for an episode or for you know, a prolonged stay at a place. Um, so, you know, not many people have that kind of disposable you know income <laughs> to to spend, and not many insurance companies will be willing to even if the place does you know negotiate pricing with insurance companies. You know, they're going to be hesitant to 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 offer that type of longitudinal care. So. Yeah, this is out of reach for most people.
2: Right. I do want to say, after a month or two or whatever it was, my dad got out and he was fine for the rest of his life, or at least as fine as he was ever going to be. He certainly wasn't suicidal anymore. All right. We have to take a break. Um, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about what the vision was for these kinds of places. Some of them realized that vision, but as you're going to hear from uh, author Stacy Horn, some of them did not. Uh, I By the way, I want to say thank you to Dominic Sisti, uh, director of the Scattergood Program for the Applied Ethics of Behavioral Health Care and assistant professor at the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at UPenn. He was with us for the first segment. Uh, Hank Schwartz, psychiatrist-in-chief at the Institute of Living and vice president of behavioral health for Harvard Hospital. Still with me. Um, joining us now is Stacey Horn, author of six nonfiction books. Most recently, Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in the 19th Century. She's the founder of the social network X. Um, uh, welcome, Stacey Horn.
4: Hi, I'm glad to be here.
2: So your book is not merely about um, an, sil- an asylum for the insane. It's really about this place that was like, it was called Blackwell's Island. It's now Roosevelt Island. It, it was sort of like a Walmart for societal dysfunction, right? If yeah. you were poor, if you were sick, if you were mentally ill, if you were, I don't know, what I, if you uh, needed to be in a workhouse to work off your debt, um, they had kind of a department for everybody.
4: It, yeah, it was basically a place to put all the populations that they wanted to keep away from the rest of us.
2: Right. So I want to talk a little bit about the initial vision of all this. And Hank, I'm going to come back to you for a second. Uh, certainly around the middle of the 19th century, you do get this movement. You know, it's Dorothea Dix. I believe there was a person named Scattergood, speaking of Dominic uh, Sisti. These people who were, in fact, social reformers who, who thought you can't just stick... Um, People who have mental illnesses in almshouses uh, and and, uh, you can't just warehouse them. We've got to develop a a whole network of facilities that are appropriate, that, you know, deliver what the mid-19th century's version of care would be, right? This was initially seen as a moral reform movement.
4: Yes, they, they did mean well. The idea was they were going to take all these people and put them on what was a very lush, lovely, bucolic island and build state-of-the-art facilities for each of them. And for the lunatic asylum, you know, they consulted experts. They visited an asylum in Philadelphia, um, which was based on what is known as moral treatment, um, and that was like the new and revolutionary approach to treat the mentally ill, which New York City aimed to fully embrace.
2: Um, Let me, uh, uh, Stacey, ask um, uh, Hank Schwartz, who's here in my studio right now. So tell us the story of the founding of the Institute of Living. I assume same kind of moral reform movement.
0: Absolutely. So late 1700s, early 1800s, up to that time, the mentally ill are kept in almshouses, poor houses. They're considered demonized, not really recognized to be ill. Um, then came a thing called the moral treatment movement, as Stacy uh, uh, points out, um, which came to us from Europe. And the, the moral treatment m- movement embodied the best ideals of the Enlightenment. It said, "Let's recognize mental disorder as illness. As illness, let's apply the best medical treatments that we have, and let's let's apply our focus to the psychological, social, vocational, and spiritual well-being of of the patient." The Institute of Living was founded by Eli Todd, who um, was one of the very earliest proponents of that movement uh, in America. And the uh, Institute of Living, which was then the Hartford Retreat for the Insane, was really only the third of the asylums in America to be formed, um, and uh, actually one of the first, if not the first, to be formed around the moral treatment concept.
2: Um, Somehow or other, we got from that to what most people's image now is of state psychiatric facility, maybe not private psychiatric facility, or maybe all psychiatric facilities. We've seen it a lot in movies like this one.
3: Dr. Solando, she told me about the neuroleptics. Did she know? And when was this? I found a doctor in a cave out by the cliffs, but I'll never get to her. I don't doubt it, considering she's not real. Your delusions are more severe than I thought. You're not on neuroleptics. You're not on anything, as a matter of fact. Then what the is this? Huh? What the is this? Withdrawal. Withdrawal? From, from, from from what? I haven't had a goddamn drink since I've been on this island. Chlorpromazine.
2: I'm not a fan of pharmacology, but I have to say... So that's Shutter Island, but I mean, you pick your horror movie or pick your social reality movie, uh, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or the Ken Kesey novel on which it's based. Um, there's kind of a pervasive sense, Stacy Horn, in America, that somehow or other this vision went off the rails. But it's not just a pervasive sense. We know from the stories that you recount about blackwell island that that it did go off the rails how did we get so far from that idea of having a good kind of facility to the kind of punitive bad form of incarceration that we wound up with
4: well it went off the rails almost immediately Uh, Charles Dickens visited uh, the the year the asylum went up and he described it as having the infamous madhouse air with the moping idiot and the gibbering maniac they were all there in naked ugliness and horror and I think two things they really didn't have a sense of how many people would ultimately need to be treated in such a facility and they were too broad about who needed to be treated in, in that kind of facility. You could get committed to Blackwell's Island just for having anxiety attacks or depression.
2: Or for speaking German.
4: Uh, yeah, or, exactly. Or um misbehaving and you
2: could be
0: with committed your husband by who impro- uh, wants to have you uh, admitted. Right.
4: Sorry.
2: Yeah. No, no. He was just saying. Also, if your husband decided you were misbehaving and wanted to have you admitted, but you did. You do recount one uh, inmate there who whose big problem seems to be she doesn't speak the English language.
4: Right. The the police justice at the time didn't understand her, and so he just said, "Okay, she's crazy. Send her to Blackwell's Island." It was it was way too easy to get someone committed. The other problem was um, money. I mean, it all comes down to money. In this case, the lunatic asylum was for the poor and the middle class. The rich had their own private asylum, so the people that were committed there were the poor, and they didn't want to spend a lot of money on that care, so they were basically starving and freezing these people, throwing them into uh, restraints and straitjackets, which they were not supposed to do according to moral treatment, and doing things like um, there was a workhouse on the island that was for people convicted of minor crimes, So convicts from the workhouse were employed as nurses and attendants in the lunatic asylum, and that went as well as you can imagine.
2: Right. So I mean, the stories of. By the way, I love the fact that the rich people's asylum was called Bloomingdale's. But yeah. um, but uh, th- there are these just horrific stories of uh, a woman who was killed, beaten uh, with a wooden chamber pot. Uh, a-, a woman who delivered a baby while in a straitjacket. Um, these just things that should never in a million years happen. But Stacey, one of the things you other you also document pretty well was this seemed really impervious to reform as well. For example, the there was this kind of um, the Senate inquiry into these alleged, alleged abuses by this uh, State Committee on Insanity. And basically what happened, as far as I could tell, is they just didn't believe the stuff they were being told.
4: 900 pages of testimony, um, and they didn't talk to a single inmate. But yeah, and, and after 900 pages of testimony, they didn't make a single recommendation, and one of the people that spoke um was an episcopal uh, missionary named William French, who is in my book. And he says part of the problem is the nurses basically can abuse and the uh, and the the inmates with impunity. And no matter what the inmates said, they were never believed. the the nurses were believed over the inmates. So they're basically all, these poor women are locked away on this island, away from family, friends, the community, where they're just being attacked by these nurses and no one is helping them.
2: Right. And so, yeah, you and I mean, the level of non-belief is kind of incredible. For example, there was a testimony to the fact this seems a, a little less extreme than, you know, the, the violence and the unnecessary restraints uh, that, that led to terrible injuries and deaths and things like that. But um, the way that they bathed people was that they just you got out of the bath and they put somebody else in your bath water. And then that person got out and they put somebody else's in the bath water until the bath water got, as one person put, thick. Uh, and then maybe they dump it out but not clean out the tub and fill it up again and repeat the thing for a whole bunch of people. And this would be an easy thing to confirm or disprove, right? But they just didn't accept it.
4: No. Over and over, they they were told this. In, in one annual report, one of the wardens confirmed that this was done, um, just because they didn't have a way of heating the water, so it, it, the water was heated in another building and had to be carried over in pails, and they just said that's just too impractical. We're not doing it. The, the, but I, can, I just want to talk about that one incident that you talked about, because it just it shows you know just another case of how nothing was done regardless of how horrible things got like there was a case where one night a patient um had her head bashed in by a wooden pail that was used as a chamber pot pot Mm -hmm. and there was only one night nurse on duty a woman named mary stevens and it was just her overseeing 150 patients with, again, three workhouse convicts helping her. And she heard this happen. She ran into the room, saw it happening. She closed the door, called for a doctor, who didn't come for an hour. And when he came, he, you know, despite this woman, Mary Stevens, begging him to take the woman to the hospital, he said, nah, she doesn't need it, and he just bandaged her head and left. And the woman died an hour later. So there actually was an inquest, and among other things, the, the, the jury d- um, came back and said that the doctors were too inexperienced because this doctor, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, was a 21-year-old who just graduated from med school. And so we, they said the doctors were too inexperienced for the demands of the job, and they censored the doctor for not moving the inmate to the hospital, even though the nurse had repeatedly asked him to. And in the end, the only person that was dismissed was the nurse. The doctor in charge of the asylum said the inmate died due to Gross negligence on her part, not his part for the way he ran the asylum, not the doctor for not taking her to the hospital, and not the commissioners who oversaw the institutions on the island. It was only this nurse who was responsible for negligence.
2: Um, We're going to have to stop there, although I really do encourage people to read, particularly for the story of uh, Nellie Bly, the pen name of a crusading reporter who allowed herself, caused herself on purpose to be committed uh, to Blackwell Island to see for her own uh, eyes see with her own eyes the abuses that were being committed. But to know more about that, you're going to have to read Stacy Ho- oh, Horn's book, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal. Oh, excuse me, Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in the 19th Century, New York. Um, Stacy Horn, thanks for being with us. And and Hank Schwartz, I want to just end this segment by saying, well, first of all, obviously, uh, uh, first of all, obviously these th- th- things don't happen at the IOL, but they do happen not too far from where we're sitting. I mean, maybe not that bad, but the stories coming out of Whiting Forensic Institute this year or last year were I mean, they just made everybody's blood boil, right? I mean, and and I think there are probably some people listening right now saying, well, how can Dominic Sisti be saying we need more inpatient treatment? Look how inpatient treatment goes when it goes bad. So uh, the rails, uh, it hasn't gone off the rails everywhere.
0: It didn't go off the rails everywhere. Um, and it certainly didn't go off the rails at the Hartford Retreat and now the Institute of, of Living. What happened at Whiting Forensic is uh, terrible uh, and um, so unfortunate in terms of the influence on this discussion, because I don't think it's fair to say that that um, happens um, in other contemporary psychiatric hospitals. I think that that is as rare as a hen's tooth. The modern contemporary psychiatric hospital is as modern and contemporary as orthopedic institutes and cardiac institutes um, and um, any other kind of, of health care um, that, that we're providing. I'm concerned that the story that Stacy's book and certainly what has happened at Whiting stigmatizes the entire discussion about the value of, of psychiatric hospital care and in a very unfortunate way.
2: All right. So um, first of all, thank you so much, Stacey Horn. And thank you so much, uh, Hank Schwartz, uh, psychiatrist in chief at the Institute of Living, vice president for behavioral health at Hartford Hospital. We're going to take a break. Uh, I'm going to have my final conversation of the show uh, with someone who was in one of these institutions.
4: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from me, Kion Wolf. the part of Bill Curry, was played by Leonardo DiCaprio. On tomorrow's show, we revisit our conversation about the post office. And now back to Colin.
2: All right. I wanted to end our show with a conversation with somebody who has lived the reality of being in a psychiatric hospital. His name is Joseph Rogers, executive director of the National Mental Health Consumers Self-Help Clearinghouse. I'm Joseph Rogers, and thank you very much for being on the show today.
5: Sure, my pleasure.
2: Maybe you could just begin uh, by by kind of giving us the short version, anyway, of your odyssey.
5: Well, at the age of nineteen, I was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, later, they changed the diagnosis to bipolar disorder. Uh, basically, uh, from the age of nineteen to about twenty-six, I spent uh, was in and out of uh, several different kinds of psychiatric hospitals and. Including a state facility for a brief, for about six months. And, uh, you know, so I had a lot of personal experience with being an inpatient in a psychiatric hospital and, uh, I did not find them to be asylums. I found them to be pretty, pretty bad places.
2: Right, um, your experience in that state facility, in particular, I think was a, a pretty uh, punitive one for you. Maybe just give a sense. I mean, of we hear lots of stories. I mean, tell us uh, what you experienced in that setting that that kind of made you think, well, this is not an asylum.
5: Well, the the biggest uh, problem is that there's just so little to do that you end up spending most of your time in a in a in a day room with a TV that's uh Behind a, 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 a kind of a glass enclosure, so you really can't even watch the TV. They don't have books. They don't have much in the way of uh, activities. Uh, uh, the, the 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 staff are pretty indifferent, if if not sometimes uh, pretty mean. Uh, you uh, f- uh, you can end up, as I did, in seclusion, uh, uh, in four point restraints, like I did. Um, for basically just sort of asking questions, um, and uh, they, you know, the, the the idea that somehow the state is going to run a, a, a place that's uh, safe and and uh, uh, a good place to be is just probably unrealistic. Uh, they've been trying for uh, several hundred years and uh, haven't gotten it right yet, really.
2: Um, Joseph, you have had uh, a long and, and very, very hard odyssey with all this, and that it did include homelessness uh, and jail because of your mental illness, as well as uh, the kinds of institutionalization that you're talking about. You sound like you're doing pretty well now. What did help?
5: Well, the thing that we find that helps and what we do here in Pennsylvania, because I work also in Philadelphia with uh, mental health uh, partners, which is a local organization, uh, Provider agency, mental health advocacy and provider agency. And the thing that we do then, and what helped me was, uh, outreach in the community, uh, working with people where they're at, uh, not having, uh, not forcing them into treatment, finding ways to engage. Some, sometimes it's as simple as a lot of homeless people have, uh, you know, very sore feet from having to stand and walk a lot. So having a podiatrist uh, in your facility to help the person with their sore feet engages them in a way that they need something immediately and allows you to establish a relationship that can get them other help that, that they need. There's also a thing where there's peer-run respite care, which is run by people who are in recovery from mental health challenges who uh, provide supports in a way that are not threatening, that are give like a home-like environment, that help a people, a, a person, uh, get through their crisis, uh, and and to connect them to the supports and and services that they need.
2: Um, Justin, let me ask you this: um, you know, as you say, you were misdiagnosed at the outset. Uh, your problem is bipolar disease. Are there people, though, people with schizophrenia that, that runs into psychosis, are there people that you just can't imagine functioning out in the community with the kind of care and support that uh, that you're describing, or is it just a matter of never quite giving those people the kind of outpatient support that they need to thrive? Are there some people who just can't do it without patient? is what I'm asking?
5: Uh, we haven't found that to be so. We've closed down uh, two major institutions here in southeastern Pennsylvania uh, with, that had probably a total of about 2,000 people in the, both institutions. And uh, we we were working with people that had sometimes been in the institution for 10, 15, 20 years. And with the right kinds of support and the right kind of funding, that's the big problem, funding, uh, we were able to provide uh, community-based support, and studies have shown that those people went on to do quite well in the community uh, and 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 stay in the community uh, and not not end up uh, needing to be further hospitalized or homeless or in jail.
2: So, Hank Schwartz, I am going to ask you to, hang, uh, to chime in here. Uh, Joseph, I have here in the studio Hank Schwartz, who's psychiatrist in chief at the Institute of Living. We're kind of back where we started an hour ago. Um, you know, either Joseph's right, anybody, anybody can thrive with the right kind of outpatient support. If it's built out in the right way and delivered in the right way, or there are some people who are going to need, in order to get to that point, um, uh, three months, six months, a year, two years of inpatient.
0: Well, I'd have to agree with Joseph. That hypothesis has never been fully tested. So surely, uh, if there were better funding for community programs, I think um, many more people could do quite well uh, in the community. At the same time, what we have now is people, many, um, who can't. And it is inhumane to be unable to personalize the treatment for them so that if a part of the treatment that they need is is hospital, that you know it it simply can't be provided. There's got to be enough money for both. And by the way, when joseph um uh, says that um, people talks about people who, who ought to be able or can make it in in the community permanently, I I think that many of the people we're talking about who require hospitalization and may require it for longer lengths of time may ultimately be able to make it completely in the community, Um, but they have episodes where they can't.
2: Yeah, uh, just we're almost out of time I want you to have the last word but what about that idea that there are some people who maybe they need six months uh, of inpatient before they're ready to receive the kind of services you're talking about
5: the problem is that six months in an institution is usually in, there's a there's a syndrome called institutionalization nice nice big word remember it for your Scrabble game <laughs> um, but institutionalization is a is, is where the person becomes uh, artificially uh, dis- disabled by the very fact that the institutions are places where you learn uh, learn dependency, learn uh, helplessness. And uh, that's the problem with these long-term stays is they're not very beneficial. When we can help a person in the community, we can help them live. Where, there's a place, there's a thing called uh, um, supported housing which uh, where people live in the house in the community, get the supports to the level that they need, and then they learn how to live in the community.
2: Um, We're going to have to stop it there, but uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody who helped out with today's show, especially Betsy Kaplan, who put it together. Thanks to Hank Schwartz, who's been with me the whole way, uh, and to Stacey Horn, to Dominic Sisti, and uh, thanks to Joseph Rogers, executive director of the National Mental Health Consumer self Help Clearinghouse. Uh, And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Actually, I'm flying to Texas tomorrow morning, but there'll be a show back here tomorrow. It's a really great show about the post office.